Welcome to the Sadler Lectures podcast. Responding to popular demand, I'm converting my philosophy videos into sound files you can listen to anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Among the schools of philosophy that Epictetus discusses, besides that of his own Stoic school, is that of the Cynics. And as opposed to the Epicureans or the academic skeptics, where we see Epictetus adopting a very critical attitude towards them and and levying some very specific criticisms, areas in which he thinks they've gotten things wrong, Epictetus doesn't say that sort of thing about the cynics. If anything, he seems to be saying they've got things not only basically right, but so right that it's, it's going to be difficult for more than a few people to live out that kind of lifestyle. Now, who were the cynics, first of all? I have to assume an audience that isn't quite fully aware of post-Socratic philosophy and all the schools. They're often called a minor school of philosophy, and they get started with this guy, Antisthenes, who was a student of Socrates. And Socrates ended up inspiring a number of different people who started philosophical schools, which were quite often at great variance from each other. So Plato was not his only student. Antisthenes was a very important student as well. And Antisthenes took from Socrates the emphasis on virtue and the idea that what's most important in life is to understand and to cultivate moral virtue in oneself. Possessions don't really matter. Family relations, not particularly important, particularly if they get in the way. Raising children, that's not really a central concern. Instead, it's working out for oneself what the good is and and living that. Trying to live a life in accordance with nature, trying to live a life of freedom, a life of simplicity, that's what he took from Socrates. The other thing that the cynics really did take from Socrates as well is the notion that the philosopher plays a vital social role. So Socrates talked about himself as being the gadfly stinging the the giant, rather sluggish, horse that was the city of Athens, which gets himself killed in the process. And the cynics also performed a similar role, going around and pestering people and saying, your your life is screwed up. You're not paying attention to the right things. Your priorities are all wrong. Hey, get with it, guy. So the cynic school ends up playing a role in the development of Stoicism. These two schools are not only similar in many of the the teachings that they have, but they're also connected by way of origins. So Zeno, the guy who starts the Stoic school, he studies under a Cynic philosopher, Crates. And so there's going to be a very strong influence of cynicism, a, you might say, transplantation of some of the key themes, then reworked, rethought through by Zeno in ways that to him made more sense than what the cynic school themselves were doing. But there is this very strong stress on virtue as the main or even sole good in life for human beings. Living a simple life, the cynics were all about, you know, reducing things to the bare minimum. Freedom, you know, figuring out, first of all, what is freedom? Is it having a big bank account? Or is it being able to do and say what you would like to do, what you think is the best at that time? 
and social criticism. The cynics went around and, like I just said a minute ago, they would harangue people. You know, they'd see people dressed up going out to a banquet and they'd say, wow, how much did that stuff cost? That money could have been used for something quite valuable, but you spent it on threats that you're going to throw away tomorrow. All sorts of things along those lines. They were trying to use frankness of speech to jar people out of a sense of complacency. So what does Epictetus think about this? Well, the key question to ask, and this is the question that he actually asks the young man who comes to him and says, I think I'm going to become a cynic. Sort of like, you know, somebody today might come to their parents and say, you know, I think I'm going to go join the army. Or I think I'm going to join this group over here that has these particular beliefs. Or I'm just going to take a gap year and go travel around backpacking or something like that, right? And somebody comes to him and says, I want to become a cynic. And Epictetus says, okay, well, that's a, a major investment. Are you up to it? Not everybody can live this kind of lifestyle. And here's why. And then he goes on and explains to the guy a number of different reasons why one needs to, you know, think this decision through. So one of these, is, and this is something that the, the cynics have in common with the Stoics, is an exclusive focus on the ruling faculty, the faculty of choice or, or moral purpose, as, you know, pro racist is translated. They think that the good lies within us. It's not a matter of our body primarily, although the cynics do in fact try to toughen their body as much as possible. It's not a matter of our clothes. It's not a matter of our social position or rank. It's not a matter of the networks of friends that we have. All those sorts of things are extrinsic to us and unreliable, and they're not really part of our moral purpose. What we do have control over is the kind of person that we make ourselves into by the choices and the refusals that we engage in and how we restructure our thinking and our desiring and our feeling and all those sorts of things. So that's something that they do have in common with the Stoics. And to be a Stoic is already a rather tough proposition, according to Epictetus. He says not too many people who claim to be Stoics are in actuality living out the Stoic life because it's a, it's a difficult life while you're in training. The Cynics, you might say... And this is a little bit anachronistic, but you could say they doubled down on it. Now, I say it's anachronistic because the cynics precede the Stoics, right? But the cynics, by the time that they're coming on the scene as a school, they have developed a kind of way of life. And the way of life that they have chosen is a life of deliberate poverty. They don't have fixed dwellings, so they don't have a house. Diogenes, actually, who was one of the cynics, he lived in a barrel in Athens. <laughs> you know, there's all sorts of interesting stories about what he did. You can read all about that in Diogenes Laertes' uh, Lives of the Philosophers. But they focused on a life of poverty. Why? Because if you were going to try to do this, you probably were better off not having too many encumbrances, right? They would have one cloak, and it usually was pretty rough. They would have a staff. They would have what's often translated as a wallet. We might call it a satchel or a knapsack that they carried things around in. And they would beg for food or for other things. If somebody invited them to dinner, they would often go. They wouldn't promise to be a nice guest in the sense of not saying things to people because they had, you know, this, this particular role of social criticism. A simple life is possible. The idea was that that would free a person for the, the better things. And physical endurance. Diogenes, again, a model cynic, would hug statues in the middle of winter to try to, you know, toughen himself up. And then he would, you know, stay out in the, in the, the sun in summertime. 
The cynics were pretty legendary for what they would put up with. And it wasn't just physical hardships like that. It was also enduring the sorts of abuse that they might get from their fellow citizens who don't like cynics or people like them being around. The cynics also were, I should put it here as well, they also had a pretty good sense of humor. As a matter of fact, some of the comic genres that we have are originally developed by a cynic school. That, that's a story for another day. So why is this going to be particularly difficult? It's already hard to work on your ruling faculty. Add to it this life of poverty, of having to beg, of you know putting up with people thinking badly of you, of simplicity, and the fact that you're cutting yourself off from external resources and this is not something that many people are going to be able to do. It's very much sink or swim. Either as a, a cynic, you are going to be able to divest yourself of these things, or you're going to be one of the most envious people around, and you're not going to be a very good cynic in, in that case. The other thing that Epictetus points out is cynics have this social role, and there's two sides to it. One is that they are, in effect, a messenger from God. And so they're there to tell human beings about what they, they need to know and generally don't want to hear. They're there to criticize people about the things that they take seriously and remind them about the things that they don't take seriously. They're there to show that social conventions are not really indices of value that we take them to be. They do so with humor. They do so with scorn. They do so with shouting at people. They do so sometimes even by the, the soft approach, right? But they're going to be saying things with a paresia or frankness or freedom of speech that is very characteristic of them. So they're out there in the world, you know, taking a stand for virtue against all these other things in a very public way. They're also a scout for human beings in that they are themselves experientially finding out whether this way of life really does make sense or whether it's a bunch of nonsense. And this raises some problems. As Epictetus points out, a cynic had really better have his or her act together. There were female cynics, by the way. There was even a husband-wife team at one point. They really better have their act together because if there's anything that's not morally pure about them, if there's anything that involves some hypocrisy, it is going to show up because they're constantly in the public sphere. Uh, and they're in the public sphere without the protection of influential friends or money or being able to retreat into their house or anything like that. So Epictetus says you got to really think this through. You know, there's the cynic way is a wonderful way. It's the sort of thing that Hercules could be identified with doing. Diogenes, you know, compared himself to the great king that is the king of Persia and thought that he came out better in, in the comparison. But not all of us are Diogenes and actually most of us are not. So he gives some caution at many points in, in this chapter. He says, do you see the spirit in which you're intending to set your hand to so great an enterprise? Take a mirror, look at your shoulders, find out what kind of loins and thighs you have. It's an Olympic contest in which you are intending to enter your name, not some cheap and miserable contest for another. In the Olympic Games, it's not possible for you merely to be beaten and then leave. 
But in the first place, you have to disgrace yourself in the sight of the whole civilized world, not merely before the men of Athens or Sparta or Nicopolis. And in the second place, the man who carelessly gets up and leaves must needs be flogged. And before he's flogged, he has to suffer thirst and scorching heat and swallow quantities of wrestler's sand. So he's saying, you know, it's like entering the Olympic Games. If you actually want to be a cynic, expect that people are going to take that very seriously and they're going to be watching you. So, you know, what is his general evaluation of this? Great way of life. The cynics are fundamentally right about certain things, but it may not be a practical way of improving our lives for many people. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.